Well, hey, Matthew, it's uh, Mark Jarvis here. I'm CEO of Giga Metals Corp. Uh, we have just uh, published a news release about a PFS that we will be filing on CEDAR within about 40 days now. Um, and that's what I'd like to talk about. Good. So would I. I read it. Uh, so lots of people, and they're not quite sure what to make of it. 11% uh, NPV7, I think. So doesn't look very profitable. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I would uh, disagree. Um, I'm just looking for that part because this is all quite new to me as well. Um, okay. So the internal rate of return uh, pre-tax is 11.1%. The internal rate of return post-tax is actually 11.4% at the base case price. In this, Why? which is nine dollars and seventy-five cents, um, and that's due to something called the Canadian Refundable Clean Technology Manufacturing Investment Tax Credit. Wow! So, you know, it's it's good the Canadian government is being supportive of these critical mineral uh, projects, and so we actually get money back. And and so in 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 doing the after-tax model, uh, the accountants took account of that. And in this case, at that price, it actually leads to this sort of weird-looking higher NP or higher internal rate of return after tax and before tax. Also, uh, pre-tax depreciated net present value is uh, 717 million U.S. dollars, and post-tax uh, is 574 million dollars U.S. Now, if you look at the sensitivity. Let's let, let's just deal with these numbers right now, and then we can move on. If you look at the sensitivity, so so for starters, nine seventy five is nineteen percent below the twenty year average price of nickel in twenty twenty three dollars. So this the sensitivity analysis takes us up to uh, a post tax depreciated net present value of one point one two billion dollars. U.S. and that's still below the twenty-year average price. Uh, if you uh, take the lower price case, negative fifteen percent, we get to a post-tax depreciated net present value of twenty-one million dollars U.S. Now, coincidentally, that's about our market cap. So we're trading at a price that assumes. Uh, that assumes nickel is going to be at $8.29 a pound for the rest of eternity. And if you believe that, then you shouldn't buy the stock. But nobody uh, in this business believes that. Uh, nickel is in, is in shortage for class one. I mean, in the short term right now, nickel's a bit oversupplied. China's slow. You've got the whole China uh, situation the China implosion is, is is what I would call it, weighing down on uh, commodities. Um, we'll see how that all works out. But I think over time, the whole electrification of everything uh, trumps the current short-term China situation. Okay, but I'll come back to my, my question again. I, I, I hear what you're saying about long-term demand. And we've always said on the show, we need all the nickel we can, right? But you right. need to produce ec economic nickel. And, and so I do understand what you're saying in terms of 2023 prices. You're trading at, you know, circa 20% below the 20, sorry, the 20, 20 year average. 
but prices are where they are today. You've got to get the project going today. What the what the what the nickel price will do over, over the near term, long term is interesting. I'm not sure anyone's got a real strong view on it. Analysts don't seem to know what they're talking about um, on that front. It, 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 would, it would appear, but if you're sitting in any other company, if you're sitting at below 20% IRR. Things are going to be tight because stuff goes wrong. It takes it takes longer. Money's more expensive. Markets have dips, etc. Why for you is broadcasting whatever your assumptions nine dollars seventy five nickel or or um, you know thirty dollars for mine, etc. Why is it okay to be down at these levels? Why should I not be nervous about the company's ability to get finance and be able to ride through these kind of you know tur- turbulent markets? Well, okay, the internal rate of return um, of various projects that's required as a threshold um, depends. It depends on where you're located. It depends on your mine life. I mean, if you've got a high-grade underground uh, gold mine um, with a seven- or eight-year mine life, you better have an internal rate of return of like 50%. Okay, we've got a 30-year mine life modeled here. It's a giant mine. Uh, we're 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 putting out, you know, an average of thirty-five thousand tons a year of nickel and a couple of thousand tons of cobalt um, for thirty years. So, you know, that's a whole different beast. And and the other thing with nickel in particular is if you can get if you can get the thing built, everybody that follows the nickel market knows that nickel is spiky. Every once in a while, every 20 years or so, and we're kind of due to overdue, it goes crazy. If you look at the historic trading of nickel, it goes crazy for two or three years, and you make all your money. And then you make obscene amounts of money during that period, and then it comes down again, and you settle into you know getting by you know with a with a nice profitable little operation that's not you know that's not killing it in terms of profit. But every once in a while, if you've got that long life, you're going to enjoy the spikes. When when Valet bought Inco, you'll recall, that was in that last market cycle where nickel went crazy. And in three years, I mean, Valet paid off their, I believe they paid off their entire purchase price of Inco in about 18 months because they got these producing assets when so high. So anyways... Nickel's its own beast, large, uh, long-life base metals projects are their own thing. And a 10% threshold, you're a project. So let me say this too, Matthew. Like, I know that it's not going to, this is not going to set the retail and the institutional uh, market on fire. I know that. You know, and there's all sorts of levers you can pull when you're producing uh, a document like this. We didn't pull any of those levers. We simply set out to accurately describe this project credibly and as accurately as we can because our target audience for this isn't the retail crowd and it's not the institutional crowd. It is the strategic crowd. We want to get the people that we're asking to put in the next tranche of financing to believe this model and that's that's our intention. That's what we've done. Okay, but you you do need the nickel 
uh, sorry, you do need the retail market to get excited about this because at 25 to 30 million market cap at the moment, you're talking about a, yes, long life project, but it is going to need to be financed. And if people, whether it be strategics or, or others coming in to finance this, there's a, there's a few things going on here. You can't afford much more dilution. You certainly aren't, haven't got the, I guess, negotiating power, it feels like, to have conversations with those strategics and not just basically get get hammered by them, to put it politely. Um, so you do need retail on site. So I'm, what I'm trying to get at is what do I need to believe as, as a retail investor that says this is a good investment now because the upside um, is, is is meaningful. So because you said to me in the past, I, I'm, I'm going to do non-dilutive financing. So I'm after, I'm, I am I'm going to buy in the open market. And I've got to, if I'm going to buy in the open market, I've got to believe that you've got a, you've got a plan. So tell me why talking to strategics only or getting strategics only is good for me as a, as a retail investor. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't believe I need the retail market. I would like the retail market to be interested, but to finance this, I don't need the retail market. Um, the strategics that we're talking to aren't looking at our market cap. Most of them, some of them do out of the corner of their eye, but if they're, if they're seriously looking at, you know, in other words, if they signed an NDA and they're poking around in our data room, uh, part of the NDA is a standstill on buying stock because I don't want them buying stock, not at these levels. So, you know, ultimately this will not be financed by diluting equity. And I've said this before, you, you know, we, we, we've got some history, you and I, and, and, you know, I'm going back three years or so. I, like I said, I don't want to dilute this with equity. And you were like, well, how else are you going to do it? Nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to give you money on a project basis when they're looking at a market cap that's, that's, that's as low as you sport. And, um, but we did, we got Mitsubishi on board, you know, and what I said to them is let's please, let's, let's pretend we're a private company. Don't, don't look at our listing. The whole market for junior mining equities is broken. And uh, frankly, I wish we weren't even public. Uh, we would do better as a private company. Um, there's no value to the listing. And I have, at this point today, I'll say it again, I have zero intention of financing this company by selling stock in the mothership here. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at selling pieces of the project itself. Um, Mitsubishi paid uh, $8 million for 15%. The project has now improved. It's improved remarkably with this uh, PFS. And so the next piece will be at a higher price than that. Um, and in terms of the market, there's a lot of interest. And the strategics, I'm talking car companies, uh, big mining companies, and so forth, uh, battery companies, they've got a long-term view. You know, what's the price of nickel today? Who cares? What's the price of nickel five years, out, 10 years out, 20 years out? They can all see this, this, this coming. And, and it seems like there's endless supply from Indonesia today. It's not endless. It's not enough. Even Indonesia isn't enough. So, okay. So... Yeah. Okay. If I if I'm a strategic, I've got to, I'm going to have a long term view because I've got a balance sheet to do that. You say I don't yep. I don't need retail because they're not going to I'm not going to raise money that way. It's strategic certainly. 
I hear, I hear what you're saying, but there's, surely there's no way a strategic's going to be saying, well, I'll tell you what, I'll look at this on an asset basis. What what controls do you have which is going to stop them from saying, well, do you know what? I, I It's a $25 million company. Why don't I just go plow in and just keep buying buying up that stock? It might drive your, your stock price up a bit, but... By by the time anyone knows what's going on, surely they they put themselves in a very very powerful position uh, with regards to you know their their say in in your in your company. I'm just I'm just trying to work out the games. Like if I was a strategic, I would have an eye on your share price. I definitely would use that as a leverage tool to perhaps um, ha- hammer you down and buy this thing real real cheap. Um, have you got what's okay? Here's what have you got enough money to kind of move through the economic? phases you've got the pfs i know some some work in there with regards to met work i mean does that help you any i mean talk to me what what leverage you've got that's what that's what i'm intrigued by okay well for one thing you're not running a strategic matthew and you don't think the same way they do because you're a creature of the market as am i so for one thing uh, any strategic that's doing serious due diligence uh, is actually in our electronic data room you know poking around to get in there, you have to sign an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. And the two pillars uh, that are necessary from our point of view uh, in the NDA are stand still on buying stock. You, the strategic, cannot buy our stock without our written permission. And the other uh, absolute key is a standstill on poaching our people. We've got a very small, very talented technical team if I was a car company, I would want these people doing due diligence for me. And so I don't want them getting poached. Those are the two pillars. And and so so they literally are not allowed to buy our stock. But also you're dealing with companies that don't even think that way, right? They don't think, oh, I'm dealing with a junior with a grubby little $25 million market cap. They're looking at the project. And they're going, how do I get involved? I want offtake. They've got their models in their minds of how they, you know, want to get offtake. And and you know, frankly, most of the car companies don't know what they're doing. Uh, there's one of them, there's one of them that I think does know what they're doing. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this next few months shapes up. But I don't think I haven't met a European or North American car company that knows what it's doing yet. You know. Uh, we were talking to a company the other day. Well, we want offtake. We want we want ten thousand tons a year for ten years of nickel, and we're only willing to pay this. And you know, and nothing else is acceptable. And we're going well. Good luck. You're not going to get that. Um, you know, if you get an offtake of that size, it's actually a poison pill against getting the project developed. So it's a catch twenty two. You know, if you've got too much offtake sold, uh, whoever comes in with the money to build the project is not going to like that. So there's, there's, you know, there's got to, there's, there's checks and there's, there's nuances to offtake that offtake is worth nothing if the project never gets built. So you have to structure things to encourage the project to actually get built, despite the fact that there's some offtake, that sort of thing, and 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 those nuances, you know. Are, if I can tell you, are not understood by the car companies except for one. Anyways, uh, but but there's interest, like there, like there's almost a desperation there. Okay, we'll see. It's it's 
It's difficult, but it's got nothing to do with looking at a junior company. It's got nothing to do with market cap. And another thing is, if you're a premium auto brand, reputational risk is incredibly important to you. And so you're not going to be digging around in the junior market. Come back to the question with with regards with regards to some of the other leverage that you've got because you still have to prove that this thing works because you're PFS stage right you've got to get through the economic phase. I get Mitsubishi's on board, but they paid their money. They got their fifteen percent. You're going to need to find new strategics to come in with capital, kind of get you get you through the phases. So, have you done any network on this thing? Are you now at this early stage able to say, well, look, I think we've got some data here which suggests that in terms of recovery, it's going to be good. In terms of therefore, you know, potentially payables, it's going to be good. I mean, what can you tell us? Well, um, you know, the main thing that the PFS has done is dramatically de-risk the project. And it's interesting you mentioned metallurgy. We've done both both a lot of metallurgy, um, but also what's called geometallurgy, where you're trying to get an understanding of the metallurgical response of every part of the deposit. So we did um, an extensive metallurgy, an extensive geometallurgical campaign um, with 70 different samples from all different parts of the deposit in three-dimensional space and uh, all different, you know, from high grade to low grade to waste grade uh, in nickel, but also, you know, different grades of sulfur and um, put them all through the same metallurgical procedure. And as a result of that, we've developed um, a metallurgical uh, recovery algorithm with error bars that are extremely tight compared to what we had before. What's that mean? Well, it means that, okay, you take a sample, you describe it chemically, lithologically, and you predict how much nickel am I going to get out of this sample? And then you actually do the metallurgical test. You see how much nickel you get out. And how close is your prediction to the result? And in each and every case, at every different grade, at every different lithology, our prediction is very close to what the actual result is. So when I say the error bars are very narrow, that's 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 what I mean. The predictive value of the algorithm is very strong. That is significant. I mean, it might be a bit in the weeds for some of the audience, but the engineers are jumping around and yee-hawing about this. It's significant. So if you're a big company and you're looking at this and you're going, okay, 1.9 billion US to get this thing built. You know, what am I looking at here? They don't, you know, for, you know forget about what I think the nickel price is going to be. You know, forget about what I think the discount rate is going to be. They're interested in knowing, do I believe the geological model? Do I believe the metallurgical recovery algorithm? Do I believe the capital cost? Do I believe the sustaining capital? And do I believe the operating cost? And really, that's what the analysis is. Uh, any strategic that's analyzing this is going to have their own price stack. They're going to have their own assumptions about all parts of the marketing. They're going to have their own needs. And so really that part of it is not what this process is about. 
Right. Okay. So you've done you've done that work. It's early days, but it suggests that while the engineers are jumping around, you say, um, well, I guess when, I, I got to bring it back to retail because this is what the show's about. It's like, I know you say in a meaningful way you don't really care about retail and you'd rather be private, but um, it, it, there are shareholders out there who do react to these things and they're looking at this low IRR. We've, we've, we've been through that. You've, ex, you've explained your justification for that. You've, you, you, I think you've explained your justification around the price point that you've used with, within the PFS um, as, as well. But things like a two, 1.9, 2 billion, by the end of the day, $2 billion CapEx requirement plus sustaining capital, plus OPEX, is at, at some point a strategic is going to have to make a call and say, I tell you what, let, we're, get, we're ready to go now. What does that mean for a retail? What's the timing of that you know, if that's, that happens? You know, that's, that's something I think about, Matthew. I mean, you know, and it's not true that I don't care about retail. I'm in myself. I own stock. You know, I'm in with, with, with all the others that, that own stock. I'm just saying that it doesn't help me much in this market uh, in, when I'm considering how to finance this company, you know, and, and I've noticed people are spending money. I mean, you know, talking to you, I'm spending money, right? I'm getting my message out there. You know, it's not that I don't care. I just recognize the market that we're in. You say the market we, doesn't care. No, the market doesn't care. So you can tap dance, you can sing, nobody cares. How do you frame that? Because I'm like, right. like, are you saying is today... Is the price today so cheap, because the market doesn't care, is the price today so cheap that actually I'm looking at a $2 billion project for, for CapEx, which you think strategics are interested enough, they're in your data room now, they've, they've signed these kind of waivers to make sure they don't steal your stuff, they, make sure they don't sort of buy up your stock and, and, and sort of you know, come around the back. Um, you're saying they're so cheap, you think that this thing will get financed to get into production, you may or may not be in control of the asset at, at, at that time. So this is a real project is what I'm hearing from you. That's what I'm saying. This is a real project. And when you see, here's one way to explain the disconnect between our market cap and what this project is. So what we're looking for for the next tranche of financing, the number that we think will get it from where we are today through an environmental assessment, through all of the geotechnical drilling, it's mostly geotechnical drilling that needs to be done at this point. Uh, but it's specialized rigs. It's you know it's expensive. Um, all the way to a final investment decision from where we stand today, we're looking for fifty million U.S. dollars. Right? I don't really want to get half pregnant. I want to raise all the money we need to make it all the way to the finish line in the next round of financing. So that 50 million US that we're looking for just to get this thing ready to build is more than double our current market cap, right? How, I'm not gonna do that by selling stock, not gonna happen. So, so as a shareholder, as somebody that owns 5% of the stock myself, I don't wanna see that kind of dilution. I'm the largest shareholder and uh, I've been diluted enough already. <laughs> so. So basically, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm in with all of the other shareholders. I have the same interests. I don't want that dilution. I don't want to put out, you know, three times the stock we bought out outstanding just to get where we need to get to 
to a final investment decision plus warrants plus uh, anyways not going to do it and yet and yet mark okay. my words matthew i will find that money okay you'll find the money this is this is not just a bet on the nickel price rising this is a bet on your ability to get strategics in to fund that 50 million and the only way that that's going to happen if, is if they think that this thing actually gets built. That's it. Simple as that, right? Yeah. I, or, or, or they, but I think the odds are good enough that it's going to get built. I mean, a final investment decision is exactly what it says. You know, they there's 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 work to do before you get. But but we've shown enough and in enough detail that a sophisticated investor can make that bet. Right. So how much money have you got today? I mean, in terms of that fifty million. Can you get through to feasibility without raising capital? As we sit here today, we've got about one year of GNA. Right. Right. All the spending we've done on the PFS is over. I've I've got about a year of runway yeah. before we uh before we crash and burn, to put it that way. Right. So you're gonna spend this next year, hopefully front front end that, finding the next strategic capital to go in because you, I'm here well, you're not answering a question about uh, have you got money to do feasibility? I suspect the answer is no, but you are going to spend that GNA time finding the next strategy. That could be Mitsubishi, it could be A and other. There's no, there's no, there's no reason why others can't come in at this stage. Oh, it's uh, not likely to be Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi, um, their model is they don't want to operate mines. They want to own pieces of mines. They want to help get them built. You know, uh, probably at the end of the day, and they're very risk averse. They're very careful. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, they would like to be 20 or 25% of the project, up from about 15%. Um, they're particularly interested in getting a big mining company in. And, and, and I should also say they're very helpful. They've been uh, dragging people to the table, saying you have to look at this. That um, has more weight when Mitsubishi says it than when I say it. I admit that. So, um, no, they're, they're, they're extremely interested in helping us get that next partner and they want it to be the right partner, someone that they like to work with. And, 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 and this process right. okay. is, is, is underway. I mean, um, with what's going on out there, Matt, it could be, we could be done by the end of the year or not, but it's not impossible that, that things could move that quickly. Well, so let me get back to the question you were asking before, which is how does the retail investor benefit from all this? You know, and I, I don't know the answer precisely, but, you know, we did a deal with Mitsubishi that valued, implied a value for a company of about 55 cents a share. And, and the stock went up to the low 40s for three days and then drifted back. Uh, the next deal we do, uh, if we get, you know, if if we get what I want, uh, could value the stock at two or two fifty a share. Will the market react to that? If we get what we want to get, and we're sitting at twenty five cents, and we do a deal with a sophisticated investor that implies a value for a stock of two dollars a share, what's going to happen? Nothing. Maybe. I tend to think something will happen. At some point, you know, the light will go on. I mean, I'm not an economist that believes in the emission, you know, in the efficient market theory where 
where markets instantaneously reflect all all information. But I'm a believer in the Jarvis version of the efficient market theory, which is that sooner or later markets are efficient, you know, and they're the least efficient in the sort of least watched microcap end of the world. So at some point the lights are going to come on, folks, and <laughs> we'll see what happens then. Indeed, we will. Well, look, look, one, I want to see, talk to you about your assumptions around the, the, the PFS and to understand how you move forward or how you intend to move, move, move forward. So it sounds like busy in the background doing stuff, which is, which is, which is good. Uh, we shall see what that equates to in terms of value, valuations, uh, et cetera, and you know, what, what sort of quantum is put down. Can you get that 50, et cetera? Uh, but Mark, as always, appreciate the candor the honesty. Um, stay in touch. Let us know how you get on, and hopefully it is for Christmas. I quite like that. Um, uh, so we'll see you soon. Thank you. Well, thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure talking to you as always.